what a chaotic era we live right now in human history. I mean, there's no one of us that could ever have guessed what we're getting into in March when this thing called COVID-19 began. And as I've observed how people have responded to the pandemic, I see that there's basically a, a spectrum with people are on either end. Maybe you're somewhere in between on that spectrum. There are those people that are really concerned and they're nervous and they take the, the virus very seriously and they're, they're staying at home and they're not going to the store and, and they're out of love for others and out of a desire to keep their family safe. They, they are just having no problem staying home and, and very obediently following the public health official orders. And so there are people that, and maybe you right here, you're on that end of that spectrum where, where, where you're fine. And, and this has just been something that's kind of been your sweet spot. You're kind of a quieter person. So you're good with the staying home. But on this spectrum, there are people on the other end of this. That they're like, oh no, this is a conspiracy and it's all just socialism and oh, there's no virus at all and it's just the media and why, why are we even stuck in our homes anyway? And so there's like this, this spectrum where people are kind of on two sides of this and, and maybe you find yourself somewhere in between on this continuum. And I do think that it's important for us to remember that Wherever you are on this continuum, that we should show grace to our fellow brothers and sisters that are maybe on the other end of that spectrum, opposite of wherever you are on this continuum. Because however you look at this, this is unprecedented and unique and has brought just so many challenges that none of us could have ever foreseen or definitely could not have possibly wanted. And so I don't think that I'm exaggerating whenever I call this season chaotic. And, and if you think it's not, if you think that I'm maybe slightly exaggerating, go to HGB and don't wear a mask and sneeze. It's all you have to do. Like, just go to H-E-B and cough and just watch what happens with everyone all around you. The looks you're going to get, the people are like looking at you like you have the plague. And it's, I, I know because it happened to me. And I'm like, stop staring at me. It's just allergies. We live in Texas. It's the spring. So just like relax, okay? I'm not contagious. I don't have COVID. And, and yet... When we look at this season that we're in, it can just create all kinds of turmoil and anxiety. And whether your job's been affected or, or not, it's affected all of us in one way or another. These are indeed chaotic times that we find ourselves living in. And I believe that God has a word for his people in the middle of the chaos that would allow us to find hope and to have true confidence in the chaos. And maybe even today you're on this online gathering and you're someone, whether you're a believer or whether you're just, just wondering what this whole religious faith Jesus thing is all about. And maybe you're looking for answers. Maybe you have questions about who God is or what he's about or what this thing called faith in Jesus is all about. And, and maybe you're just looking for some shred of hope in the middle of all that's going around you. And 
what I can tell you from the authority of God's word, not my authority, but the authority of God's revealed word, the Bible, I can assure you that God has the answers that your soul needs. Maybe you're asking like the prophet Habakkuk asked, why does God allow bad things to happen? And we're continuing today in our series in the book of Habakkuk, an Old Testament prophet who lived roughly six centuries before the birth of Jesus. And we began last week in chapter 1. And so just to get you up to speed in case you missed last week or just to refresh your memory, the prophet Habakkuk was complaining to God because he saw evil He saw all kinds of atrocities among God's people who were supposed to be holy and set apart. They were supposed to display his character to the nations, but instead there was all kinds of evil and injustice and corruption. And Habakkuk cries out. He complains to God and says, what gives? God, what are you doing? Why don't you do something about this? Why don't you end the evil? Why don't you stop the chaos that's happening around us? And God responds to the prophet and he says, Hey, Habakkuk, I got this, man. It's all good. I have a plan. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to send the Babylonians into Jerusalem and they're going to completely decimate the city and take my people into captivity, into exile in modern day Iraq. And Habakkuk is like, what? Did I just hear that correctly? Are you sure that your plan is to steamroll your people and to send them into captivity by the hands of an even more evil and violent people, the Babylonians? And God responds to him in chapter 2. And God says, as a matter of fact, yes. Listen. He says, hey, Habakkuk, bro, listen. I have a vision. I have a plan. So go go get a tablet and write this down. This is exactly what you see in Habakkuk chapter 2. God says, write it on tablets. I don't want you to miss it. So take notes. Listen up. Because I have something I need to tell you. Get down from your tower where you were hanging out and waiting for an answer. Here is the answer. He says, those that are puffed up with pride will die. But... He says something absolutely stunning in chapter 2, verse 4. We saw this last week. It's quoted in the New Testament several times. It says, yes, those that are puffed up for pride will die, but the righteous shall live by his faith. We will live, and this is how we live as God's people. We live by faith, by trusting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, his sacrificial death and supernatural resurrection where he defeated sin, Satan, and death itself. And so God's ways are higher than our ways and God's thoughts are much higher than our thoughts. And so we trust Jesus and we live our lives by faith. Because in the chaos, God is drawing us closer to him. He is growing us to maturity and enabling us to reflect who he is more clearly, which results in more joy in our lives. So we trust him. And that's where chapter 2, verse 5 
ends. Today we're going to pick up with chapter 2, verse 6, where we left off last week. Now, it's chapter 2, the entire chapter is God's response to Habakkuk. Now, we stopped at verse 5 last week, so today we're at verse 6. But it's the same flow of thought that we're just now talking about. So we need to keep this in mind on living by faith as we get to verse 6, because it is the exact same context. And this applies to us today because if we're honest, yes, evil exists. Now, there are worldviews, like for example, the Buddhist worldview that would argue that say, no, there's no such thing as evil. God doesn't exist and evil doesn't exist. It's an illusion. It's not real. And so this is how several different worldviews try to explain away the fact that there's evil and there's suffering. But the reality is that there is evil. There is death. It is a reality. And the Bible doesn't deny it. It acknowledges, yes, there is pain. Yes, there is suffering and disappointment. The Bible doesn't gloss over it or try to deny it or sidestep it. The Bible looks at it square on and says, yes, there is evil. COVID-19 has indeed wreaked havoc in our world and in our lives. It's a reality and we don't deny it or try to explain it away with platitudes. What we do is we trust that God has a plan and he has a solution to overcome this evil. In Habakkuk 2 verses 6 through 20, God is promising to bring justice. You see, the justice of God by him promising to destroy Babylon. Yes, God used Babylon to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Yes, God is sovereign, but Babylon is still accountable to God. And so here we see this divine tension that the Bible puts side by side, that we accept by faith, that we live on, is that God is absolutely sovereign and everything happens according to his will, and yet humans are free will, moral agents that are accountable to God, and God holds every single one of us personally accountable to him. And so we maintain this divine tension, and we see here in Habakkuk 2 that God is holding Babylon accountable for their great evil. But it points to something much bigger and even beyond Babylon. God has a plan to end all evil, to end all sadness, to undo death and anything that would leave us grieved. God has attacked it, assaulted it, and through the cross, defeated it. And we're going to see that here in Habakkuk chapter 2. So we're going to see the today's theme, the, the title for this sermon, is that we can have confidence in the chaos specifically because we can face the enemy without flinching. Have you ever played that game, maybe with your child, where you both stare and both of you try to keep your eyes open and see who blinks first? Well, when it comes to looking at the enemy, you can face the enemy without flinching, without fear, with confidence and boldness, knowing that the enemy is defeated. Because we see here God is just. And he is defeating all of the enemies and giving us the rest that our souls need and that we were promised from the very beginning. 
So God is saying through these verses in Habakkuk 2 that all of the evil that Babylon has done will now come back upon them and this is God's hand of justice. Let me give you the outline if you're taking notes in chapter 2, 6 through 20. There are two sets with a total of five woes or, or taunts. And this is like condemnation that God has upon Babylon. And so you see the first three. This is verses 6 through 13. You have the first set of woes, and there's three of them. And then you have verse 14 that serves as a interlude that describes the glory of God. And then you get to the second set of woes, which is from verses 15 through 19. That's two more woes. And then that ends with another declaration of God's glory. And so what you have is this back and forth, this oscillation with woes upon the enemy and then the glory of God. And then woe upon the enemy and then the glory of God. And so you're seeing this beautiful movement in this poem as it's unfolding here in these verses. Verse 14 is absolutely stunning if you understand what it's saying. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. God has a purpose where he wants to cover the face of the earth with people who treasure his glory, who worship him, who find their greatest joy in him, who fall down and and honor the king. He wants to cover the face of the earth with worshipers who value his glory just like the oceans cover the face of the earth. But when you see here in verse 14, where it says that the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. The word there for knowledge, for knowing, does not mean a academic or an intellectual like book knowledge. And so, for example, if you speak Spanish, then you know that the word that describes knowing something is saber. So, si tu sabes algo, so if you know something, so the word saber, or yo sabo, I know, what that means is that I have a knowledge, an intellectual, academic understanding of a subject. So, that's where it is, saber. But if you know someone, if you have knowledge of someone, but they're a friend or a family member, it's someone that you actually have a relationship with and you have an experienced, shared relationship. The word for that is conocer. So, yo te conozco. I know you. And so, conocer means knowing. Saber means knowing, but one means just knowledge that's academic and one is knowing the person. And when you look here in the Hebrew, the word for knowledge, for the knowing of the glory of the Lord, it's not describing knowing God's glory in an academic or religious or ethereal disconnected way. This is a personal knowing, a personal experiencing, having a personal relationship and a treasuring of the glory 
of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is what God is after. He yearns to fill this earth with people who deeply know him, that are in awe of who he is, that have seen his stunning glory, and they fall before him as worshipers recognizing their place as created in the image of God and treasuring the king, finding the greatest joy in God. So God is promising that he's going to cover the earth with people who know him and who genuinely see worth in him and more worth in him than anything else that this world has to offer. The main idea of Habakkuk 2 is that God has a purpose and the purpose is to display his glory. The purpose of God is to display his glory that we would see it and respond with worshiping him and then we ourselves then display, we then reflect his glory as image bears we image the glory of God and that's what you're seeing here back in two is God's purpose is to display his glory everything God has ever done in creation or in rescuing people from their sin has this one and single purpose which is to display his infinite perfections to display his glory God's purpose is his glory that we would see it and savor it, enjoy it, and reflect it. How is your heart today? And I don't ask that lightly. I, across this screen here, I really mean that. How is your heart today? Are you struggling with discouragement? Are you just down? Maybe disappointment. Listen, this is a chaos in our world that none of us would have ever wanted, that none of us could have ever predicted. And so how do we rise above it? How do we come up out of this chaos and be able to see the glory of God and see purpose in this? Because we know by faith that there has to be purpose. And so how do we see it? How do we grab a hold of it and come out of this with true peace and rest and with confidence even in this chaos in the middle of it how do we do that let's look at Habakkuk 2 and I want to show you specifically three central ways that God is displaying his glory and that's connected to how we will find a sense of confidence in the chaos as we display who he is number one the first truth here uh, how God displays his glory is he is trouncing evil trouncing evil you're like what does trouncing mean well if you have two teams that are playing and usually when when the cowboys are playing the cowboys get trounced the cowboys don't usually do any trouncing because to get trounced means to lose badly to get blown out so if you're a cowboys fan i hope you like the draft because that's usually the highlight of the year um it's just the way it goes for cowboys fans i mean i'm sorry but getting trounced is just what it means is getting beaten badly, being thoroughly defeated. So if an army comes in and steamrolls the opposition, the enemy, well, they trounced. 
the enemy. They totally annihilated, thrashed, defeated, savagely ended the enemy. So what we are seeing here in Habakkuk 2 is God is trouncing evil, soundly defeating and ending evil. God keeps his promises and he has five woes on Babylon that describe how he is going to trounce evil. Let's read the first woe. It says, woe to the thief. So those who steal. This is verses 6 through 8. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtor suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because, here's verse 8, because you have plundered Plunder means to steal. You have plundered many nations. All the remnants of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So you're seeing here, it's saying, Babylon, you have been evil and you have plundered and stolen and been a thief. And so now you will be plundered. The victimizer will now become the victim. That's the first woe. The second one, verses 9 through 11. The second woe is woe to the dishonest. So condemnation on the defrauders. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. To set his nest on high, to save from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. There's this language of how they have built with dishonesty. So it says that you have defrauded. And it says in verse 9, evil gain. So they built their house with evil gain. So cheating and stealing from people, being dishonest. And so what you see here, it says they, they built nests on high. Babylonians were known for building very tall towers that were impressive to keep them safe. And so it says, you go on your nest on high, that's not going to keep you safe from God's judgment. And it says that Babylon will fall and cry out and even the stones that were used, that were required dishonesty, will cry out in condemnation against Babylon. So second woe was woe to the dishonest the third woe, this is the first set. The third woe is woe to the evil builder. Verses 12 and 13. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations wear themselves for nothing? So they built their kingdom with blood and they literally founded it was founded upon evil and there's this striving to build a kingdom and build a life that displays their own glory to rob God of his rightful glory to build based upon their accomplishments and their achievements and that led them to great evil so seeking to build a name for themselves 
led them to atrocities. And those who are evil builders will be undone. So that's the first three woes. And then you have verse 14, which is a declaration of God's glory on the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then you get to the second set of woes. So the fourth woe, it says, woe to the shameful, verses 15 through 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your own circumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come round to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence unto Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence of the earth to the cities and all who dwell in them. Babylonians were a very perverse people. It says that they would get people drunk just so that they could then gaze upon, stare at them naked. And it says, God says, judgment will come upon you, you who are shameful. This woe to the shameful. God says, I'm going to shame you. And he says, show your uncircumcision. If there's children listening, I'll let parents explain what that means. On God is going to expose them. God is going to show them their shame and shame them. Because in the Hebrew thought, to be naked is to be shamed and so what you see here with this talk of God making them naked is describing them being shamed you who are shameful who shame people God's going to judge you Babylon and you will end up shamed and defeated in judgment woe to the shameful and then the last woe verse 18 and 19 the fifth one woe to the idol worshiper verses 18 and 19 what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath at all in it. So this is just awesome. It says you have these pagan priests. It says that they are teaching. So he calls them teachers of lies. And they would fashion these idols made of precious metals. And then they would bow down and actually worship these man-made idols. And it says, but they can't even speak. Can they teach? Can they reveal anything to you? It's like you, you are worshiping worthless man-made idols. And it's amazing. It says... For its maker trusts in his own creation, and he makes speechless idols. Compare that with God. The Spirit of God breathes life and speaks, and yet idols don't breathe, don't bring life, and are dead. There is no breath at all in it. Daniel 5 describes the end of Babylon. King Belshazzar 
through a massive feast. This is in 539 B.C. And it says that he had over a thousand people there just watching and over a thousand guests and all of his all of his women, his concubines and his lords and this big old drunken party. And, and Belshazzar then calls for the gold utensils from the temple of God. And he shamefully drinks wine from these holy vessels from God's temple. And then he passes out more of these holy vessels, these cups, to his, his prostitutes, it says his concubines and all people that were there. And they're all just reveling and partying and mocking God's people that they had defeated. Babylon was so evil. And it was all fun and games until God shows up and crashes their party. And this hand appears and starts to write on the wall. And Belshazzar is just freaking out. And he calls Daniel and says, what, what does this hand say? What is it writing on the wall? And Daniel basically says, King, you're done. Babylon is finished. And that very night, the empire of Persia rose to dominance. And right when Belshazzar and Babylon was, was mocking God's people and indulging in evil, that very night Babylon fell. And the Persians completely decimated Babylon, became the world power. And that very night, King Belshazzar of Babylon was killed by the Persians. God kept his promise. He promised to defeat Babylon and he did. Now, the fall of Babylon is more than just a historical fact that God could see into the future and just foretell. That is not what you see in the Bible. What you see is God raising up Persia in order to defeat Babylon. This was the hand of God. This was God being sovereign over the affairs of man. This was God liberating his people from captivity because the Persians would then send God's people back to Israel, restored back to the promised land with the temple rebuilt and brought back to their God. And it's much bigger than Babylon. And we know that because the same serpent that was at work in the garden opposing God's people is the same serpent that was working in Babylon still opposing the people of God. Ever since the Garden of Eden, we have had our adversary who tempts us and harasses us and opposes us. And so God promised in the garden Immediately after Adam and Eve rebelled against God following the serpent, God promised to one day send his Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent. And so when God is defeating Babylon, understand what he's doing. He is taking one more step in the unfolding plan of God to defeat the enemy, to then bring the Messiah Jesus of Nazareth, who would crush the enemy with his resurrection from the dead so that he can then bring his people back into the garden, back home with God where we belong. God has a plan. He has a purpose. 
He is trouncing evil. He is conquering evil. What this means for us today is that we can rest. Whatever evil has befallen you, whatever evil you're struggling with, you can know that God knows. He cares. And he has promised that he will defeat it. He will conquer it. Not just barely. Not by just a missed field goal, lucky. No, 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 no. I'm talking blowout, total destruction. God is going to totally annihilate evil. And Babylon is just an example of what's going to happen. Read the book. At the very end, Revelation, the enemy is totally defeated. Death has lost its sting. Death has no power over the believer because it uses resurrection and victory over the grave. And so we can have confidence so we can face the enemy without flinching because of the victory that Jesus has won for us. So God is displaying his glory by trouncing evil. Number two, he's displaying it by transforming his people. He's not just trouncing evil, he's also transforming his people. Verse 14, we've read it twice already today. That for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, he says, as the waters cover the sea. Now, I think that's a really fascinating, kind of interesting phrase. It says, as the waters cover the sea. Have you thought about that for a second? Cover, like waters covering the sea. The sea is made of water. And so how can water cover the sea when the very essence of the sea is waters? This is important because of the connection, because of the parallel in the verse. It says that just like the essence of the sea is waters, The essence of your purpose and God's glory is the same. And so your purpose and God's glory are not two different things. Just like the essence of waters and the sea is the same thing, the essence of your purpose and God's glory is the same thing. Your purpose is to enjoy the glory of God. They're one and the same. So just like... The oceans are made of water. Your purpose is made of enjoying the glory of God. This is why you are alive. But see, here's the problem if we're honest. We all fail. None of us do this. None of us display God's glory. None of us do what we're supposed to do. We are sinful. And if we're honest, we talk about facing the enemy. If we're really honest... Our biggest enemy is ourselves. The enemy is inside. The sin is inside. And so these five woes, these five sins of Babylon, if we're honest, they're our exact same struggles. We can struggle with dishonest gain. We can struggle with trying to build our lives with our own hands and finding our identity and what we can accomplish just like Babylonians did. I mean, it it talked about wanting to see naked people. 
have you seen what's online? I hope not, because it's all over it. It's our culture is inundated with what Babylon wanted, which was to gaze upon the nakedness of others. Idol worship? Maybe we don't fashion idols out of gold, at least not in this country. Now, they do in other countries, but not in the U.S., maybe. But we have idols in other ways. And idols, anything that you love more than Jesus, anything that you treasure more than God, anything that you turn to. I mean, we can turn to good things like our career, ministry, family, being married, eating healthy. Any, anything like that can become an idol that we treasure and our identity is wrapped up in. But it can be evil things too. Anything that we love with all of our hearts is an idol, what we turn to for comfort, for joy, for purpose, for hope, to get you through the day, for your pick-me-up. That can be your idol. And since none of us fully reflect the glory of God, what is the solution? We saw it earlier, chapter 2, verse 4. We live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. The ones that are puffed up with pride die, but the ones who trust in God are the ones who live. And so this phrase on the righteous live by faith, it doesn't mean that those who are already righteous then have faith. It's not what it means. It doesn't mean that the religious people already have faith. No, it means that by, be, by having faith, that is what makes you. Having faith is what allows you to receive God's righteousness. And it's what transforms us and changes our hearts to want the glory of God, to want Jesus more than the idol because Jesus is better. This is pointing to 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He's transforming us. As we behold the glory of Jesus, His Spirit transforms us. So if you are going through a hard time right now, like in some ways all of us are, you have to know that this chaos is God's refining fire. And it's a mystery to me because I've been through some fires that are so intense that it would feel like I'm going to get burned up. I'm going to become just ash. And yet, God is merciful. And we go through this fire. And it's painful. And on the other end, we come out. And we find that we're not burned up. There's this divine mystery. Instead, we're more pure, more patient, more holy, more generous, more loving, more committed, more like Jesus, reflecting his glory more. And so God is at work, yes, trouncing evil, but he is at work in transforming his people if it will yield to him and trust him to change us. Number three, as you wrap up. He's showing his glory by transfixing his people. Transfixing. Like, what does transfixing mean? The word transfixing means to look at something and be unable to look away. Because what you're looking at is so amazing or so interesting. It has caught all of your attention. And so your eyes are just transfixed. 
fixed and you can't even look away at whatever it is because it is just too much to just turn away from. And this, this is what God is doing. He wants us to be transfixed on the face of Jesus, stunned in awe. And you see it in verse 20, the second declaration of God's glory in this text. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. He's saying that we're all in God's presence and we're silent. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't talk to God. What this means is that when we're in his presence, we're stunned in silence and he speaks because idols don't speak. They're lifeless and they're speechless, but God speaks and he breathes life and we're captivated and we're fascinated by him. And so we just focus on him. So here's some questions for you to ponder as we kind of come to a close here this morning. Some questions for you to think about. What fascinates you? I mean, really, what, what fascinates you? What consumes most of your thoughts? What would your friends say most of your conversations are actually about? So what consumes your conversation? What brings you most comfort? And one last one, what is it that you most hope is in your future? That if you don't get it, so something that you want so bad and the thought of not getting it makes you feel like it's just not worth living. If I don't get blank, then I just can't imagine life being happy. I can't imagine life being worthwhile if I don't get blank, whatever it is. Because these will get to the heart idols. And we should be fascinated by Jesus where he consumes our thoughts and he is our joy and he's our everything. We could ask it this way. What are your eyes honestly transfixed on today? Habakkuk is amazing because of the depth of how God is described. Oftentimes we think of God, we think about just one characteristic, just one of his traits. And we say, oh, God is good. That means that God can't have wrath. Oh, God is gracious. So God can't possibly hold me accountable. Well, no, he is both love and holy. He is both gracious and he's also just. He is both in totality. And so we need to have a more robust, a better understanding of who God is from his word so that we can be captivated by him, transfixed on him, but not a God of our imagination, a God from the word, a, a holistic, beautiful, thrilling God, but all of who he is. If you want to see this clearly, look to the cross. On the cross, you see the justice of God. Jesus paid for our sins. Sin had to be paid for and Jesus paid it all. So there is a justice of God. And yet the cross also shows the mercy. God loves you, which is why Jesus died in your place. So the cross is a collision of two of God's characteristics, his absolute holiness and his absolute love. And you see it at the intersection, the collision of the cross. Do you worship this God? The God who was and the God who is and the God who is to come. We worship the resurrected Christ who has defeated the enemy. 
Yes, bad things happen. Absolutely. I don't deny it. Maybe it's bad for you right now. But if you will look to Jesus, there's hope. There's hope because what we see here is that he has a plan to display his glory through your life. He has purpose. And so we see here that he truly is trouncing evil. He is transforming his people and transfixing our eyes upon him for our joy. We could also say those three points this way. God is displaying his glory by conquering evil. He's doing it by changing his people and by captivating his people. And he's doing all of it for the display of his infinite perfections, satisfying us and bringing us joy so that we can then walk in the victory that Jesus offers. Father, as we close this morning, we just ask that you would be at work. We ask you, Father, that those that are even right now watching online who know you, that they would have a greater resolve to yield to you, to surrender to you, to walk in your spirit, to see more of that transformation, more trust that you truly had defeated the enemy and that you will one day come back. And so we can hope in you. May we be a people of faith. And Father, for those here that maybe are listening that have never even known you, that today will be their day of salvation, that they will turn to you away from their sin and experience the joy of your salvation. Father, what we yearn for most is the display of your glory. And so we thank you that you have loved us. And Jesus, you are our first love. And we love you. And we praise you. For you alone are worthy.